If you have a Bible, and I hope you or somebody around you does that you can look on with, let me invite you to open me to Mark chapter 7. Feel free to use table of contents if you need to, Mark chapter 7. And as you're turning, I want to welcome those of you in Arlington and Moco and Loudoun and Prince William, as well as others online. It's good to be together around God's Word, which we don't take for granted. I was talking with Pastor John Jenkins recently in our city, Pastors Glen Arden. Today is one of their first Sundays back since COVID after attempts to start and restart and walking through funeral after funeral in their church family. So we pray for God's blessings on them and churches across our city that are gathered around God's word. And before we, we dive in today, I want to briefly mention our congregational meeting from this last Wednesday night, which uh, many of you uh, received an email with an opportunity to affirm new members online. If you didn't do that online, you can do that today at any of our locations. But during that meeting, I encouraged every one of us to make a plan for inviting someone to come with you to one of our Easter gatherings. So for those of you who may have missed that meeting, I want to give that encouragement to you today. Invite somebody who doesn't know Jesus to come with you on Easter Sunday. Most people will come to church on Easter Sunday if someone invites them. So invite them. Start inviting them now. Make a plan for who, how, when, and remember why. Invite people to hear about Jesus because you love them. You know their eternity hinges on trusting in Jesus as their life. And because you love Jesus, because you love him so much, you want to introduce others to him. So make a plan and let's pray intentionally between now and Easter Sunday for our family members and friends and neighbors and coworkers to trust in Jesus that day. If not before then, as we have opportunities to share Jesus with them leading up to Easter. So, all right, Mark chapter seven, a chapter that starts with an accusation about Jesus' disciples having unclean hands. So I did a little experiment this week with two of my kids, Isaiah and Mara, to see how clean their hands were after they washed them. So here's a little homemade video of how that turned out. All right, Isaiah and Mara, you ready for this? Yes. Okay, let me see your hands. I'm gonna put a little lotion on there and I want you to rub it in really good all like under your fingernails on both sides of your hands. There we go. All right, rub it really good. Okay, now we're gonna turn the lights off and we're gonna see the germs that are now on your hands. Are you ready? Here we go. Whoa, let's, let's look at those hands. Wow, that's weird. Yikes. Okay, turn them over. Ugh. Okay, so that represents germs. Now, what I want you to do, let's turn the lights back on and we're gonna, let's turn the lights back on and we're gonna wash your hands. All right, wash them really good. Feel like you gotta wash pretty good? All right, let's see how well you washed your hands. Here we go, let's turn the lights out. Hmm, turn those around. 
Ooh, Isaiah. I thought you washed your hands. I did. Mira, what happened? <laughs> like, turn them over the other way. Look at that. Look at your look at your fingers. Yikes. <laughs> so that'll make you think twice about shaking anybody's hand today. <laughs> My kids are otherwise. But the discussion of clean hands we're about to see in Mark 7 was not between a dad and his kids. It was between Jesus and the kings of religious cleanliness in that day. So the scribes and the Pharisees were looked at as experts in pure religion before God. But in Mark chapter 7, Jesus flat out tells them that in their infatuation with what they thought was pure religion, they were missing the whole point. And, and this was bold. So imagine me telling LeBron James that he doesn't know anything about basketball. Or Ronaldo, that he doesn't know anything about soccer or what the rest of the world calls football. Imagine me telling Jeff Bezos and Bill Gates that they don't know anything about business. Or Carrie Underwood and John Legend that they don't know a thing about music. Imagine me telling The Rock he knows nothing about muscle gain. Well, in Mark chapter 7, Jesus is talking to the spiritual athletes, the spiritual elite, the spiritual bodybuilders of that day, the people everyone looked to as the goats of religion. And in this conversation, Jesus tells them they don't know anything. And in the process, Jesus totally redefines the heart of pure religion before God in a way that not only had massive implications for them then, but has massive implications for every single one of our lives today. So let me show it to you, starting in Mark chapter 7, verse 1. Follow along, either in the Bible in front of you or on the screens. The Bible says, when the Pharisees gathered to him, now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, so let's pause there for just a minute and get the setup here. So the Pharisees, were the teachers of God's law, and the scribes were some sort of official delegation that had come up from Jerusalem specifically to question Jesus. They've done this already in the book of Mark, and they're doing it again, and the picture's clear. Don't be surprised when religious people come after you. Don't be surprised when religious people try to trap you in your words or accuse you for your actions which is exactly what they do, starting in verse 2. They saw that some of the disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees, oops, for the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked Jesus, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? Now, let me pause here and make sure we understand what we just read. So, the religious leaders are saying the disciples' hands were defiled, unwashed, unclean as they were eating. But this was more than just a hygiene issue 
like you saw in that video. This is a matter of religious ritual cleansing according to tradition. To the tradition of the elders specifically. See, over time, oral traditions had developed alongside God's Word. And as scribes studied God's Word and saw, for example, a picture of priests in Exodus 30 and 40 being commanded to wash their hands in a certain way, they would then apply those commands to everybody. And before long, everybody was washing their hands in a certain way before meals because that's what was taught by the religious leaders, even though there was never a command in God's Word for everyone to do that. And there were other traditions like this. How to wash, cleanse yourself after you return from the marketplace or specific rules for washing cups and pots and other things. So the Pharisees and scribes asked Jesus, why do your disciples disobey, not walk according to the tradition of the elders? And they eat with, un- with defiled hands. And Jesus replies to them. He said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you, hypocrites, as it is written. So Jesus went for the jugular to a group of people who were attacking, trying to trap and accuse him. He says hundreds of years ago, Isaiah talked about you hypocrites, you religious fakes. Again, these are the spiritually elite of their day. Jesus said, you're a bunch of imposters. And he quotes from Isaiah 29, verse 13, saying, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. That last phrase is so important. You're teaching as doctrines for people to follow commandments, ideas that come from men, from people. And in the process, verse 8, you leave the actual commandment of God while you hold to the traditions of men. And then Jesus starts to pour it on. He said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. And then Jesus gives another example. He says, for Moses said, honor your father and your mother. And whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. So those are clear commands from God's word, his law. But you say, if a man tells his father or mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corban, that is given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother. Thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you've handed down. So a little background here. God had clearly commanded Children to honor their father and mother, to help provide for them even. But people in that day had come up with a tradition to basically get around that. The word Corbin here is used about 80 times in the books of Leviticus, Numbers, and Ezekiel to refer to an offering that was dedicated to God. What was happening is that people who wanted to hold on to their possessions would actually dedicate them as Corbin to God, meaning that once they died, those possessions would belong to the temple, but as long as they were alive, they could enjoy and use those possessions however they wanted. So if somebody didn't want to provide for their aging parents, they would dedicate their possessions as Corbin. Then say, sorry, mom and dad, I'd share with you, but I can't because my possessions 
our Corbin. They are dedicated to God. And in this way, they were going around God's command to honor and help their parents. They were following a tradition that totally made void the word of God. And many such things you do. Jesus said these are just a couple of ways. They were so focused on their traditions and their thoughts that they were ignoring God's word. Hold on to that. We'll come back to it in a minute. But keep going here, verse 14. Because by this time, Jesus is shocking everyone. He's confronting the religious leaders in a way that nobody did. And the people, including the disciples, are thinking, what is going on? And Jesus called the people to him again and said to them, hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And this is where Jesus starts to redefine pure religion before God. Going back to hand washing, Jesus says, it's not fundamentally what you do on the outside that makes you clean or defiled, unclean or undefiled. No, defilement starts with what is inside you, that which comes out of you from inside. And then, much like we see at different points in the book of Mark, Jesus brings his disciples specifically aside for a more private conversation with them, and we get some elaboration on what this means. Verse 17, when Jesus had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart but his stomach and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him, for from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. What a statement. I don't know if you followed all that. But Jesus just made a revolutionary claim. He just said that spiritual transformation happens not from the outside in, but from the inside out. And realizing this changes everything. Not just about the way we look at religion or even what we're doing in this gathering right now, but realizing this has eternal ramifications for your life right where you're sitting and my life standing before you. So follow this. I want to show you five dangers of empty religion according to Jesus. And even as I use that language, I want you to think with me. Is that possible? Is it possible for you or me to be religious, to do religious things? Whether it's going to church like we've done today or reading our Bibles like we're doing right now or all sorts of other good deeds, yet miss the whole point. According to what we just read, the answer is absolutely yes, it's possible. These were the religious leaders who went to the synagogue all the time, who studied God's word all the time, who did all kinds of good deeds. But Jesus called them hypocrites 
pretenders, fakes, hollow religionists who miss the whole point in dangerous ways. Let me show you this. Five dangers. You might write them down. First, these religious leaders elevated their thoughts and traditions above God's word. They elevated their thoughts and their traditions above God's word. It's pretty clear from what we just read. They had added so many rules and regulations to God's law. And in the process, those rules and regulations, their thoughts and traditions became more important to them than what God had actually said. And just think about what was driving this. This is so important to see. Let's get kind of below the surface here by elevating their thoughts and traditions above God's word. It's not like they decided, hey, we're going to do this. But they began to do this in order that they might justify their self-centeredness. Think about their approach to Corbin, these offerings. They created a way to hold on to their possessions while ignoring parents in need. Their thoughts and traditions enabled them to live for themselves instead of God's law, instead of living for the good of others. Then, second, by elevating their thoughts and traditions above God's word, they fueled their self-righteousness. They had come up with a whole set of teachings to follow that would make people righteous before God. In other words, as long as they did what they thought was right, they can be considered righteous before God. And then third, by elevating their thoughts and traditions above God's word, they serve their self-interests. Think about these religious leaders and their teachings on ritual washings. They created a whole religious system that was dependent on getting additional rules from them, not from God's word. And if what Jesus was saying was true, that righteousness is found in following God's word, not the teachings of religious leaders, then these guys were out of a job. Now, all of this can seem pretty far removed from us. We don't have teachings about Corbin or ritual washings today. But let me give you at least a couple of examples of this danger in more recent history. Let's think about the dangers of empty religion in the last couple of centuries in our country. And danger is the right word. Think religious people going to church weekly reading their Bibles daily and doing all sorts of good religious things, all while seeing people with black skin as less than them. For years, religious people subjecting other people to slavery and abuse and buying and selling them as property, only to be followed by years of segregating and demeaning and disadvantaging them only to be followed by years of denying these disparities. How is that possible? Well, for many reasons, and I certainly don't want to oversimplify the past or the present, but at least part of the problem involves religious people and their religious leaders holding so tightly to their thoughts and traditions in ways that justified self-centeredness fueled self-righteousness and served self-interest to the detriment of generations of people made in the image of God. The danger of empty religion. And let's take another example. God has given us a clear command, a great commission that we say at the end of all of our gatherings to make disciples of all the nations, of all the 
people groups of the world. Jesus said, this is what I am leaving you on this earth to do. And God has given Christians and churches across our country's landscape billions upon billions of dollars to do it. Yet we spend a minute percentage, far less than 1% of our collective resources on getting the gospel to unreached nations, on doing what Jesus clearly told us to do. Why? Could it be that one of the reasons, if not the primary reason, is because we've created an entire religious system a picture of the church in our country that justifies self-centeredness so that even when we give leftover money in our churches, we use most of that money on making church comfortable for us in ways that fuel self-righteousness as we serve self-interest, practically defining the good Christian life as a safe spin on the American dream, coasting it out here while we turn a deaf ear to billions of people on their way to an eternal hell who've never even heard the good news of how they can go to heaven. And we have convinced ourselves this is Christianity the danger of empty religion when thoughts and traditions focused on making life great in our nation trump Jesus' command to make his name great in all nations. And we could list multitudes more examples. How we can so easily elevate our thoughts and traditions to avoid God's clear commands to care for refugees, and sojourners, the poor and the oppressed, orphans and widows, the kinds of things that God defines as what? Religion that is pure and undefiled. Beware the dangerous tendency that resides in every one of us to hold tightly to our thoughts and traditions, even our opinions or convictions, that we actually make void the word of God. And this wasn't the only evidence of empty religion in Mark 7. So here's another danger. They performed religious actions for themselves apart from spiritual affection for God. Think about that. They performed religious actions for themselves, apart from spiritual affection for God. This is Jesus quoting from Isaiah, who had called out God's people for hollow, hypocritical worship. And notice the connection here between vain worship and teaching as doctrines the commandments of God. People. Don't, don't miss the connection here. So between the first and second dangers of empty religion, if what brings us together in this gathering right now is our collective thoughts and traditions, our opinions and our convictions and our practices that we're most comfortable with, if these are the things that bring us together, then who are we worshiping in our gatherings? Ourselves under the guise of worshiping God. If what unites us is our thoughts and our traditions, then we're united in the worship of ourselves. Yet we think we're worshiping God when we're not. 
It's exactly what Jesus was saying to these religious leaders. You're not worshiping God. Your hearts are actually far from God. So this is why the word of God must be that which brings us together. The word of God, not my thoughts or your thoughts, not my opinions or your convictions, your your opinions, not my convictions or your convictions, and certainly not the prevailing thoughts or opinions or convictions of a particular country, party, ethnicity, or ideology. The word of God, period, clearly and plainly taught and understood, only the word of God leads to true worship of God. And what happens when this word is truly elevated above our thoughts and traditions? What happens? Spiritual affection happens. Spiritual affection. This word leads to spiritual brokenness and contrition over sin as our thoughts and our traditions and our opinions and our convictions are put in their proper place. True elevation of this word leads to spiritual fear and awe before God and his greatness. Spiritual gratitude and thanksgiving for God's grace. Spiritual hope and strength in God's promises, like we saw last week amidst the storms in our lives. Spiritual celebration of his salvation. This is true worship, and this is what happens when we elevate God's word far above our thoughts and traditions. What did God say through Isaiah later? Isaiah 66, verse 2. This is the one. This is God speaking. This is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. True religion trembles at the word of God. And it's followed by a humility and contrition that leads to spiritual affection for God. And how easy it is to miss this. For any one of us to come into a setting, even like this today, and to sing songs or say prayers or listen to a sermon while our minds and hearts are actually far from God. And just so you know, I can be guilty of this just as much as anybody else. If anything, those who work in the church are most susceptible to this temptation because it's their job to be religious. The reality is it is possible for any one of us to perform religious actions for ourselves apart from spiritual affection for God. Which leads right into the third danger of empty religion. I'm actually going to cover... These last three, back to back to back, because they build on each other and everything we've already seen. So third danger, these religious leaders saw uncleanness in others that they refused to see in themselves. They were literally on a mission to point out uncleanness in others. And the disciples and ultimately Jesus. Religious people will use people close to you to come after you. But by the end of this conversation, Jesus was saying to them, you're the unclean ones. But they couldn't see it. And they wouldn't see it. Throughout the rest of the book of Mark, we're going to see These Pharisees and scribes again and again and again arguing with Jesus as soon as the next chapter in Mark chapter 8 and eventually plotting and implementing a plan to kill Jesus all while thinking they were in the right. 
Which leads to the fourth danger here. They ultimately thought they could make themselves clean. They could make themselves right. These religious leaders created a whole way of thinking and a pattern of living that they thought would make them okay before a holy God. Let me say that again, just to make sure you don't miss it. These religious leaders created a whole way of thinking and pattern of living that they thought would make them okay before a holy God. And I repeat that because this leads right into the fifth danger, and I believe it's the most important one. So don't miss it. By the end of this story, we have a pretty negative impression of these religious leaders, and for good reason. They elevated their thoughts and traditions above God's word in ways that fueled self-centeredness and self-righteousness and self-interest. They performed religious actions for themselves with hearts that are far from God. They're pointing out uncleanness in others that they refuse to see them in themselves. And despite all their wickedness, they thought they could make themselves clean. But all of that leads to this last danger that we need to see about these religious leaders, and here it is. We are them. We are them. By we, I mean every single one of us in this gathering today. You, right where you're sitting right now, me, all of us, we all elevate our thoughts and our traditions above God's word. This is actually the essence of sin in all of us. We all think our ways are better than God's word. This is the first sin ever in the world. God, I know what tree to eat from, no matter what you say. My thoughts are better than your word. We all assert our ways over God's word. It looks different in each of our lives, but we do this in ways that fuel our self-centeredness, self-righteousness, self-interest. And we can all perform monotonous religious actions apart from authentic spiritual affection. We all have the ability, a keen ability, to see things in others that we refuse to see in ourselves. And we can all create a way of thinking and a pattern of living that makes us think we're okay before God. But the clear point of Mark chapter 7, verses 1 through 23, is that it doesn't work. The point of Mark 7 is that the people who tried the hardest and did the best, who were the most respected, spiritually elite athletes of their day, couldn't do it. Which means, so follow this, because this is where this passage comes directly into your seat, your mind, your heart. What we don't need then are all of our attempts to clean our hands. Jesus said, understand this, like get this. It's not what goes into a person from outside 
that defiles him. You can't make yourself clean on the outside, no matter how many times you wash your hands. These Pharisees and scribes were so focused on the outside that they were completely bypassing the heart. And we can do the same thing. Again, it looks different in each of our lives. But just think about all of our individual efforts on the outside to be happy, good, right, successful through work, education, appearance, money, possessions, status, religion. We can do everything we can, but our problem is deeper than any of those things can solve. Our problem is at the core, deep down inside, all of us are unclean before a holy God. So what we don't need are our relentless attempts to clean our hands. What we desperately need is Jesus to change our hearts. From within, in our hearts. And Jesus lists all kinds of sin here in Mark 7. And his point is, all these things proceed from the heart. Like evil thoughts come from an evil heart. Sexual immorality proceeds from a sinful heart. Theft comes from a heart of greed, a heart that is not content in what you rightfully have. Murder is an attitude of the heart before physical action. And we could keep going. Adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. These are all heart issues that start within. And no matter how many times you wash your hands on the outside, you can't make yourself clean on the inside. But good news. This is why Jesus came. This is what God promised centuries before Jesus came. God said through Ezekiel, Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 25, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. God says, I will make you clean. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. This is revolutionary. Stop focusing on the outside, on making yourself right. No, God says, if only you will let me, I will. See how it says, I will over and over and over again. I will do this work deep down inside of you. I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you that wants to walk in, obey my rules and my statutes, my word. Like, how is that possible? How do we get a new heart? Only through Jesus. Only through the one who has lived a life of no sin, no uncleanness, no defilement. And then, though he had no sin or defilement in him for which to die, he chose to die on a cross to pay the price for our defilement. 
And then he rose from the grave in victory over death so that anyone, anywhere, no matter what defilement you have in your heart, anyone who confesses their sinfulness and turns from their attempts to make themselves right and who trusts in Jesus to make them right, to change your heart from the inside out. God himself will forgive, cleanse you of all your sin. God himself will fill you with his spirit and enable you from the inside out to experience eternal life with him. This is the gospel. This is why the Bible says in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ in Jesus, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, the new has come. Has this happened to you? Have you let Jesus make you a new creation? Have you trusted Jesus to change you from the inside out? If not, I invite you to experience that miracle today in your life now and for all of eternity depends on that miracle happening in your heart. Not on you being religious, not on you making yourself right, good, happy, successful on the outside, but on trusting Jesus to totally transform you from the inside out. And then for all who have trusted in Jesus in this way, let's live this out from the inside out, not in lives of empty religion with all its dangers, but in a pure religion with all its blessings. Let's meditate on and memorize and study and digest God's word so that it is elevated far above all our thoughts and traditions and opinions and convictions. Let's turn aside from all of our tendencies to justify, fuel, serve our ways instead of obeying God's word. And let's worship him with all our heart and soul and mind and strength. And let's love our neighbors as ourselves, caring for the poor and the oppressed and the disadvantaged and displaced and the orphan and the widow and many others in need as we make disciples of all the nations, knowing this is what our God calls pure and undefiled religion. Will you bow your heads with me? I asked you that question just a moment ago, and I want to ask it again, right where you're sitting, before God. Has, have you experienced the miracle of becoming a new creation, received a new heart, through faith in Jesus as the Savior who died for your sin and who rose from the dead and reigns as Lord over your life? If the answer to that question is not a resounding yes in your heart, 
that I invite you right now to experience the miracle by faith, just to say to God, God, I trust that while I have sinned against you, you love me and you desire to cleanse me of all my sin and to give me a new heart. So I want it today. Cleanse me, forgive me my sin, fill me with your spirit, with your heart. Today I put my trust in Jesus, Savior and Lord, as my life. And the Bible says all who call the name of Jesus in this way will be saved from all your sin, brought into the family of God, filled with his spirit, given a new heart. God, we praise you for this miracle and we confess our need for it, that we can't make ourselves clean, that we can't make ourselves right before you, we can't make ourselves happy, good, this or that, apart from your grace in our lives. We praise you for making this miracle possible, a miracle of a new heart, new creation possible for us. And so for all who have experienced this miracle, we pray, keep us from empty religion and all of its dangers. Keep us from elevating anything in our minds, in our traditions, in our opinions or convictions above your word. May your word be supreme in our hearts, in our lives, in our families, in your church. We pray for true spiritual affection, God. We don't want to waste our Sundays together, our lives on monotonous religious motion. God, we pray, ignite our spiritual affection for you in deeper and deeper and deeper ways. Now in the days ahead, in ways that overflow into extravagant love for you and extravagant love for our neighbors in need around us. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name, the one who alone can change our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray, and all God's people said, amen.